Gina Dent is an associate professor of feminist studies, history of consciousness, and legal studies at UC Santa Cruz in California. Erica Miners is a professor of education and women's gender and sexuality studies at Northeastern Illinois University. Uh, Gina and Erica are two of the four creators of a pivotal new book from Haymarket entitled Abolition Feminism Now. It's an essential text that was also co-written by Angela Davis and Beth Ritchie, two of the most important thinkers on the prison industrial complex and its deep connections to racial capitalism. Abolition Feminism Now is a breathtaking invitation to enter into a conversation about how we might respond as a society to the dehumanizing and brutal system of policing and punishment that we've more or less come to accept as the only means of ensuring public safety. Rich with examples of strategies for liberation, this book offers an authoritative analysis of not only the forgotten place of the incarcerated in contemporary society, but many, many other timely social problems that feel at times like they have no solution. The trick is, they say, solutions are hard to imagine because of the way that ideology and what they call carceral aesthetics blind us to the urgent necessity of abolition. In this conversation, I tentatively asked Gina and Erica whether there might be a way for abolition to become more insistent on proactive change rather than only emerging in response to particular crises. Their response reminded me of how little I really know about the movement for abolition. This is not about some historically new force in global politics. It's not the case that abolition feminism right now represents some reactionary emergence of something that wasn't there. Abolition feminism has been here for a very, very long time. It's just that this history has been purposefully and perniciously forgotten. This moment of increased mobilization that we're seeing today is the product of what Gina calls a widening of the circle to include people that have been awakened by recent events and who are trying to respond to multiple temporalities coexisting at once. They suggest that striking back against the normalizing of state violence requires the work of pushing the public sense of what the prison industrial complex is past the specific space of unfreedom we imagine, the prison, and insisting on having longer and more complex conversations about the system of racist mass incarceration that we inhabit and that we're complicit in. That's a lot to take in, but it's necessary, they argue, to stay with the complexity, with the trouble. As they write in Abolition Feminism Now, it feels like historical time is accelerating. Crises are escalating and crashing violently onto the poor and precarious, so we have to try to respond with radical solutions to the emergencies that envelop the vulnerable first, while also remembering that, as they try to explain, we are always going to struggle to learn when we're in the space of emergency because of the suffocating intensity of emergency. This is a problem if the goal and challenge of our times is no less than to fundamentally rework the very way in which society is structured. It might be time to extol the value of radical independent journalism that fights back against pro-police misinformation. It might be the time to politicize pop culture too. We discuss how many people separate the knowledge they glean from popular culture from the knowledge they acquire from more serious sources. But the thing is, the pop cultural knowledge is still serious. Considering the fact that Kendrick Lamar and Dr. Dre were just reportedly pressured by the NFL, which is currently embroiled in accusations that the league is run like a, quote, plantation, they reportedly asked them not to spout messages that are negative towards the police. 
during the Super Bowl 56 halftime show, a longtime spectacle of American nationalism and militarism. While Dr. Dre kept his anti-cop line in his song, much of social media reacted right away when they heard Lamar omit a reference to the police in his anthemic song, All Right. This omission, whether Lamar was pressured or not by the NFL, defangs a song that became a rallying cry at certain points during the uprising for black lives. This strategic censorship matters, and in this conversation, Gina and Erica offer some powerful ways of theorizing the consequences of cultural revolution that makes previously censored thoughts, statements, and rallying cries unsayable. The kind of first thing I wanted to throw at you grew out of my viewing of last week's, I think it was last week's online book launch for Abolition Feminism Now, um, which by the way, everyone should check out on Haymarket Books YouTube channel. Gina, you talked about in, in that um, book launch, you talked about how mutual support provided a kind of framework for writing the book. Um, and there was also a moment toward the end of the launch where uh, Angela admitted that she kind of doubted whether all four <laughs> of you uh, would be able to assemble a unified voice, uh, mm. given, you know, everybody's distinct identities and critical voices. Um, but what was amazing to me is that, you know, Angela also says that because, you know, because of rather than despite those differences, she like learned more from this book, she says, than any other she's been involved in, um, which kind of blew me away. Mm. Uh, it reminded me of the the moment in the book where you all write that quote, building radical community can be contagious and joyous work. Um, there's a way in which I think the book is sort of modeling how to create a unified but still plural voice. So I'm wondering what you would say that you learned, I suppose, about you know working through and with difference, as Angela sort of put it. And I think relatedly, how you overcame you know, your stated dissatisfaction with the technologies that were available for collective writing, I mean, any practical tips on collaboration and on maybe fighting Zoom fatigue are more than welcome. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll begin since you, you, you raised my name. Um, thank you for having us and for your engagement with the book. Um, we're so very happy about it. And really, it's I, from my perspective, it's mostly because it is a collaborative effort and because it represents not only our collaboration, the four of us, but the collaboration of so many uh, who've been working over so many years. And so um, I think we, we definitely um, both underestimated in the beginning uh, how disparate our takes would be. And we really hadn't factored in what our uh, written language would look like. And after so many years of knowing each other and interacting and sharing a political vantage point, we expected that to be able to do the work of guiding us. Now, as experienced organizers, we probably should have understood that that's not how it works mm -hmm. and, um, and that our brief timeline for producing this manuscript was uh, overly optimistic. But we certainly did learn a lot about what it means also to be marginalized in other areas and then to try to come together and put our ideas and the ideas of those we wanted to lift up at the center. And that process was really, really important. We started mm -hmm. on Zoom before Zoom became the norm. I happened to have an account from another 
project and we thought that it would be a bridge until we could be in person together writing all day, just spending time enjoying meals and discussing. And while in many ways I would have preferred that modality, we managed to enjoy our time on Zoom and, and we used our weekly check-ins and work to to talk about what was happening in the world. And so I do also feel that I learned so much in this process. I learned so much about the material and the histories, but I also learned so much about the other authors and the different ways in which we can access very similar ideas and what it takes to explain those to each other and to explain them to um, our readers. That's amazing. Uh, Erica, did you want to follow up on that? Oh, sure. Um, first, it was just great to be in conversation. And just I was just listening to Gina and I was like, yes, yes, sort of um, mm-hmm. um, excited by um, hearing your voice. Um, yeah, I just was remembering when we started, it was, uh, you know, I was in a little tiny cubby hole in New York and I had never, I think I had never used Zoom before. And so it was just sort of like, what is this new technology that I'm going to be trying? <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I, I think, I feel like there's so much like the world when we started this, you know, is so different than the world that we're in now. You know, I think that's one, one lens, but it's so much is also the same. Um, but what um, the sort of the last several years of working on this, I feel like it was, it was a incredible and very powerful anchor given all the, you know, shifting and unfolding those changes in working conditions, you know, changes um, in the political world, changes in health and, um, you know, pandemic anxieties. So for me, it was also just like really a wonderful anchor to have this project. Um, and I think we all, you know, were juggling multiple, you know, um, life commitments, organizing commitments, you know, paid work commitments. So it felt, um, you know, it did feel sort of precarious at moments. Like, are we going to be able to, to move, you know, move, move through this and finish the project? I mean, I think that, you know, the relationships um, and the learning and the connections absolutely, um, I think, solidified, grew, anchored. But I mean, the, the turning something into a product, you know, um, that has an external life was, you know, absolutely a challenge. And I think even having it floating out in the world, I mean, we all are like super excited and thrilled, but we're also, I mean, I look at it and I think, oh my gosh, we missed talking about such and such project, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is yeah. like, how could we forget, you know, so-and-so's work, right? Um, so uh, I think there's a, like a, maybe that's just me, my anxiety, but I have that little worry, worrisome, but I feel like also, it's something that you said earlier, Gina, that it's actually much easier to have this, to be talking about this project in the world, um, because I think that there's like a shared, um, a shared ownership of the work between the four of us, but also a shared ownership of the work much more broadly. Um, so I think that that is, um, feels, feels right and feels useful. Right. And the book describes itself as that sort of invitation um, it doesn't imagine that it's, you know, tying things up by any means. Um, but yeah, it might, it must feel good to have it out there, but also to, to have this sense that, um, it's not sort of just an embodiment of one person's thinking. Like it's, it's like a movement document, maybe more so. And it, like that, it, it must feel good, not only for you, but I have to say it feels good for the rest of us who sort of needed that book. I read an interview uh, uh, with artist and scholar activist Cyrus Marcus Ware recently, where he talks about how, quote, 
there isn't necessarily a place to get all the info about basically theories and practices of abolition. In part, he thinks, quote, because we've spent so many years having to debate about why abolition, that we haven't necessarily had as much time to be able to dream about how abolition. Mm. Um, Now, though, he says, it's just a different conversation. Um, Abolition feminism now is offered, as I say, as this kind of invitation and open-ended intervention. Um, There's like, for example, there's a number of places where you're actually signaling to the reader that this is a small book um, that doesn't necessarily contain all the answers. Um, You know, I think about like Angela Davis's Our Prison Obsolete, which is also like notably a short book. Um, You know, even though you're acknowledging that there are sort of these omissions, Erica, do you feel like that was on some level a conscious effort to keep the text manageable so that it could be maybe more easily added to and operationalized? Like, did you and did you learn that tactic from other movement documents uh, that you talk about in the book? I mean, I, I sure, I think it's like a both end, you know, gr- mm-hmm. you know great question. Both, um, I think we were fairly clear that we, you know, we weren't, and we sort of um, articulated that in the project, that we weren't trying to have, it, you know, any finite, complete, you know, um, authoritative uh, genealogy or kind of prescriptive checklist. So I feel, mm-hmm. I feel like that was sort of central to our thinking and our writing and our practice. I think, but at the same time, this is the, the sort of the both and it felt um, important because of, you know, our relationships, our connections and our, um, you know, our practices um, to, you know, try to be as, you know, generous in um, how we were, um, you know, what, what we were including. So I think that that's sort of a tension and also a, um, a, you know, a productive tension to sort of be, you know, be clear that we're not trying to do a finite project, but also um, mm-hmm. recognizing that it, you know, it also matters what's, you know, what, what's included and what's not included and how to, how to, you know, how to hold that tension in a productive way and in a generous way and in a, um, you know, in a, in a way that's invitational so that this project can be in conversation with, you know, as, um, as you're the person you were citing before um, earlier framed, you know, with other pieces that are emerging now, I think that there is, um, you know, more texts that are coming out that are both kind of looking historically, but and, and also more kind of more in the doing in the how to um, Mm -hmm. uh, around abolitionist work. And I think that's wonderful um, and amazing. Yeah. I mean, Patrice colors just released uh, an abolitionist handbook that Mm -hmm. has these like, questions these prompt prompts put into it that are you know incredibly probing questions like what would it mean to allow yourself to feel more in relationship to prisons um gina did you want to follow up on that thread well you know one thing that we were aware of is how these movements do or don't get documented and the problem of thinking about leaders and then looking for certain kinds of activity to represent ideas and activity that has gone on before. And we were really wanting to make sure that we could create this open container that would allow people in the future to be able to go back and and understand some of these interconnections and and know the names of some of these organizations and be inspired by them. Mm-hmm. And also we felt that the people who are out organizing now 
needed to um, be able to be recognized and to see themselves in this and also to see themselves in larger companies. So one of the things we spent some time doing was thinking about what the parameters were for abolition feminism. And that meant that we included work that didn't go under the label abolition feminism. In fact, almost Mm -hmm. none of it does. And uh, work that would be maybe a, a different approach than we might take uh, individually and even collectively as authors. And yet we felt that all of that work was contributing to this shifting um, and evolving environment where these questions can now be taken up in a serious way. And some part of it needs to be that that practical component This is also really about feminism, a feminism which recognizes all of the small and large labors that go into making change. We talked Mm -hmm. at some point, I think, about, you know, what our theory of change was. And while we don't narrate things in that way, I think we are indicating something about how we think about history, how we think about the future, how we um, have come to recognize that movements can take advantage of that forward and backward looking. Hmm. And so I, I think we're sharing uh, the joy of this moment, uh, even as we are all facing, and of course, as recently as um, the new case in, in Minneapolis area, um, hmm. you know, we're facing ongoing uh, death and ongoing destruction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the 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 video is is horrifying, and again, like I mean, the the context is missing. It seems, and that's what your book, to some extent, is is offering. It's offering more than that. And I want to come back to this idea that it's also kind of theorizing temporality itself, like the temporality of transformation mm-hmm. in a way. Um, but like right now, there has been this widely reported on spike in crime across the US and globally. Mm-hmm. And the book is is sort of trying to give people a different way of thinking fun, more fundamentally, more radically about what we call crime. And like the reporting on crime that you get from the mainstream news really doesn't offer any structural engagement with the sources of the spike per se. Like it's maybe gestural and, you know, like it causes a panic in certain mm-hmm. parts of basically white settler culture, I would say. And and like just a, de- a familiar demand to, you know, basically hammer criminals by throwing more policing at the problem. So like, for example, Jeff Greenfield just appeared on PBS NewsHour to talk about how, from his perspective, as a white settler, crime is an unavoidable, he calls it a thermostat for public opinion. Um, and like, they even pre- present him with this problem of how activists who are demanding criminal justice reform at the very least, you know, what they should do in this moment. And of course, he has little to say because he doesn't really have much sympathy, clearly, for what he no doubt takes to be a kind of lost cause. And, you know, all they talk about is how the new DA of Manhattan got elected on a progressive platform and has to now deal with the fact that there is only room for reform. And mm-hmm. I guess by extension, uh, I suppose, only ever an appetite for abolition in moments where crime is decreasing. And like mm-hmm. a lot of the time, I think that ramped up policing is in direct response to like invocations of the unsafe children who live in underserved communities, maybe especially, but not exclusively. And, and like here, I think like Eric, I wanted to maybe um, bring in your research on the child, the figure of the child and what Lee Edelman calls like reproductive futurism. 
um, the, the child should be symbolic of a not yet determined future. But like your book for the children protecting innocence in a carceral state is a serious takedown of this notion that the child is representative of possible futures. Like you argue materials, materially speaking, um, really the child is, is when we're talking about the child as vulnerable, it's usually a white child and the trope of innocence gets, gets deployed to usually like foreclose on any sort of radical structural change. You're saying children matter, but it also matters ideologically that, quote, it is never precisely clear who counts as a child or a youth, and that in some inescapable way, um, the child is being employed to protect what you call the punitive matrix of a carceral nation. Um, And I guess like thinking about your book, how do you see that being used right now, if at all? Like, is there a way in which the pandemic maybe has shifted like the discourse on the grievability of certain young people and their families and and maybe not others? Or is it like the same dead end that it's always been politically? Wow. Okay. Um, Thanks for that fabulous question. Um, I mean, I'm both, uh, you know, always, you know, slightly optimistic and not at the same time, not to, you know, not to invoke the both end again. Um, I do feel like, you know, for example, I'm here in Illinois and um, state of Illinois, um, and the governor is moving to close the last five, you know, juvenile prisons in the state, um, but is also, you know, proposing a new multi-million dollar, you know, treatment center for young people. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of public, you know, sympathy for closing down the last five juvenile prisons in the state. But mm-hmm. we've had like zero public sympathy for um, you know, releasing anybody in prison during the COVID pandemic. So I think the question that you're, you're asking, you know, it's always, it's always the both end. We did have, you know, during the moment of the pandemic, um, you know, more attention to the conditions for people inside. Um, and we had mobilizations, you know, caravans, as we talk about in the project, mm-hmm. um, around prisons and jails, pushing for release. I know in Canada, I was just, you know, talking to um, folks in Canada and um, Nova Scotia released, you know, 41% of their prison population. Granted, it's fairly small during the, you know, during the um, uh, during the COVID pandemic and no um, no consequences in terms of um, backlash. Mm-hmm. So, um, I th- I think that the the question that you're raising about you know has the pandemic altered the landscape of grievability. Um, you know, from where I sit, I would argue, no. I mean, we couldn't get into prisons and jails. We couldn't get into the um, hand sanitizer. You know, there's not potable water in the one that um, I'm often in um, pre-pandemic and even a couple of times during the pandemic. Um, so I think that the, the limits of who counted as fully human, right, which is an old question, a persistent question, right, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't extend to um, you know, people, people locked up, even in this moment of COVID, right? Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, the next one, again, sort of references um, your brilliant book, For the Children, question um, mark. In that book, I like that you write about the effects of what you call problematic representations in visual culture of like harmed white girls, dangerous strangers, police saviors, and violent criminals and convicts. Um, You make it clear in the book that those are images that 
quote, solidify stereotypes and reinforce affective political investments in a carceral state. And that it's less often the case that you can find media representations that challenge audiences to rethink common sense surrounding punishment. But like, there is this sense that counter memory uh, is, is important as a means of contesting and correcting these affective political investments. Um, in abolition feminism now, there's also this important appeal for what you call an anti-carceral aesthetics uh, that can mm -hmm. expand our ability to like visualize the violence of the carceral system. I, you know, this is really to both of you, but I guess like, could you speak to your sense in For the Children and, and, and both of you to your kind of co-authored book uh, that there's something about the terrain of pop culture, especially that, as you put it in the book, kind of outpaces changes in policy and law. Like there's a different kind of potentiality in pop culture that I, I, I get the sense you don't feel is being realized. I mean, I think of it less in terms of uh, a problem of temporality mm. in terms of popular culture catching up. I actually think about it in terms of how we in movements and in academia and in popular life um, artificially segregate or attempt to segregate the knowledge that we receive from our visual cultural environment and the knowledge that we receive from our own experiences and our from our friendships and relationships and the knowledge that we maybe mm. read about or consume in other ways. I think we, we, we like to assume, especially as academics, that we, are in, we understand incarceration because of uh, what we've read about it or a documentary or even uh, legal work or organizing. But we have to acknowledge the degree to which we are also informed by this pervasive uh, environment which represents incarceration as having always been with us, at least visually, mm -hmm. because we have no filmic history without it, and always um, pressing on us. And so the proliferation of images of law and order, and to say law and order, I'm, I can even invoke the series, the multiple series by that name, which are... Um, which had inundated not only U.S. culture, but are, are shared globally. So that information is working on us all the time. I actually have to say that um, I, I watch a good deal mm -hmm. of popular culture as part of my work. Um, sometimes that's horrifying. But I um, have really noticed the degree to which a wide uh, spectrum of um, of films, television programs, and other offerings have started to try and transform at least an idea of what happens mm -hmm. once someone goes into prison. I mean, one of the things about police procedurals is that they, um, you know, begin with the case, and then once someone is is rendered to into custody, you no longer know what's happening. They just disappear and we're not invited to think about it. When we do have exposure to uh, issues of incarceration in our popular culture, we have certain tropes that are returned to again and again, especially when we're talking about women in prison. And so the emphasis on the violence of those who are incarcerated 
rather than the emphasis on the violence of the system is something that all of us have been exposed to relentlessly. And as I was beginning to say, I do see this being challenged in a way, in small ways now. Um, people like Patrice Cullors, whom you named, and others have taken an interest, actually, in the production of television, partly to address some of this. Uh, people like Mariam Cabo, who are interested in looking at children's books, have tried to address the various ways in which young people are introduced to ideas about justice uh, mm -hmm. and even just how we should live. And so I, I think of this as really um, challenging us to attend to the ways in which we are shaped by this as knowledge and that these contributions need to be um, thought of in terms of um, how they contribute in subtle ways, in ways that we are often very unaware of, to our uh, delimited imagination. And that certainly weaves back to what you said a moment ago about the crime spike. Um, many people are blaming the crime spike on on the defund the police movement. Right. But, course. you know, we need to talk about the conditions under COVID that have exacerbated racial capitalism and have exposed so many of the fissures in our society and so many of the problems of not having a safety net. Popular culture could be a space in which we start to generate different kinds of narratives about what we can do, but we have to be concerned about it. We have to, uh, we have to think beyond just freedom of expression, which has meant that the controlling ideology has determined so much about what is produced and what is allowed to appear on our screens. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to kind of think about there. Um, I don't know, Eric, if you wanted to add to that at all. Um, sure. I mean, I think the question about the crime spikes, there's been a lot, you know, of independent, you know, uh, journalists who've been sort of challenging that, um, doing kind of deep dives into research and really kind of, you know, problematizing that, um, those, you know, facts. Um, so I think that's an important thing to pay attention to and just another moment to lift up radical independent, you know, journalists, I think really important. Um, and then I was just, while Gina was talking, I was just flashing because yesterday I was talking to two students I teach at a working class, pretty open access public university here in Chicago. I teach sometimes in the justice studies program. And I was talking to two young, you know, young men of color who um, are in justice studies and, um, you know, were telling me they are interested in being parole officers, but in order to be parole officers in Illinois, you have to have first have worked in corrections, have been at like a CO, a prison guard. And so I was just, you know, kind of like asking them about like, you know, did you wake up at 13 and want to be a, <laughs> a, a parole, uh, a parole officer, parole agent? And, you know, Illinois also doesn't actually have parole. So it's a longer conversation, but essentially doing the work of a parole agent. Um, and they were talking about television shows that they'd watched, right? Um, to Catch a Predator, yeah. uh, Locked Up, uh, a couple of other ones. And, and it was just sort of like, um, you know, first in their family to go to college, um, wanting a job that is hiring, right? But, you know, corrections is always hiring, right? Um, um, wanting a job that had like authority, respect, um, leadership, uh, compensation, um, and, and of course, you know, how teaching, for example, or um, is portrayed in the in the mainstream media in, in Chicago is like, you know, they're firing black teachers right, left and center. It's sort of all societal evils are the result of, you know, public school teachers. 
Um, so, you know, it was just, I was just flashing on there, you know, I did, you know, uh, highlighting TV shows that they had watched as, uh, as sort of, um, um, as, as, as genres that were clearly offering, like, you know, people who had agency, who had leadership, who could differentiate, who could protect the weak and, you know, catch the bad people, um, as part of that, you know, desire to be a, you know, a parole agent. Um, um, so anyway, all that to say, um, you know, I, I'm excited by, you know, the, the, the work of abolitionists who are kind of creating these, um, you know, imaginative narratives that are, um, um, that are allowing people, I mean, we, we reference in the project sort of speculative fiction and the work of speculative fiction um, that are really, you know, kind of trying to move people's, you know, all of our, you know, not, I'm not, you know, um, in isolation of that, you know, it's also changing my thinking. Sort of these imaginative mm-hmm. projects, whether it's N.K. Jemison's work or um, that are just speculative, that are allowing us to sort of rest in a different landscape where it's not about sort of bad people and good people or, um, you know, that there's other possibilities to imagine flourishing life pathways that, you know, give people, you know, uh, leadership and respect and dignity, right? Um, which is what I heard these two young young folks, you know, describing what they wanted. And I was like, well, you, I was like, you could be a public school teacher. <laughs> and, then I, and then I was thinking like, you know, they were looking at me like, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. anyway, that was a long response. No, but it, it has to do certainly with, I think, like um, the function of these representations as a kind of pedagogy. Like, mm-hmm. and I think about the, the campaign against shows like Live PDE. Mm-hmm. and cops, mm-hmm. these supposed reality shows that are really, yeah. and and even the fact that we now have a term like copaganda to describe the police pedagogy mm-hmm. in those shows, like um, that, you know, th- there, there is movement against the sort of indoctrination that that, that carceral form of pop culture provides. Um, and like, I'm thinking too about how like, you know, Angela in the documentary Visions of Abolition talks about like when she herself started calling herself a prison abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she's talking about the wake of the Attica prison uprising primarily, Mm -hmm. which, you know, she experienced sort of directly, but now we experience as a thing of the past, like highly filtered. Um, And, and so like, I found that to be a really extraordinary moment. And it's like one that you kind of underscore in abolition uh, feminism now that there's a real urgency to remembering those radical events in a kind of unfiltered way. And, and there is like, in particular, this idea, I think that there's a counter hegemonic force to just vividly remembering those moments. And like Attica is especially important. Um, I wondered if you had noticed, like, there is a sudden interest in accessing that specific moment in the history of the United States violence against its prison population. Like last year, HBO released a documentary simply titled Attica. Yeah. That has this visual evidence that had been lost and presumed destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, Frank uh, Big Black Smith and Jared Reinmuth mm-hmm. published this critically acclaimed graphic novel, uh, Big Black Stand at Attica last year, uh, which Angela is depicted in. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like if so, if your book as it, you know, it's pointing out that there is this like amount I'm quoting it now, like an amalgam of economic, political, cultural and representational forces that produces the fatal normal that we inhabit. And it's it sounds like both of you sort of feel like some of these texts, like Gina, this is something that I heard you saying, like some of these texts do offer another example uh, that, you know, maybe counters 
uh, you know, that, that fatal normal. And it's coming at a particular moment too, right? Like you're, you, you wrote the book before um, what Ta-Nehisi Coates calls the murder by torture of George Floyd um, mm-hmm. and the explosion of activism. In the book, you say like mobilizations like this are often precipitated by violent death. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, I mean, like there is a way in which these images radicalize people. I don't know as, as I don't know how to ask this question exactly. Like, I wonder if you can imagine how abolitionists could somehow be, as it were, like less reactive or something. Like I interviewed Natasha Leonard for the podcast, and this was one of the points she made that it's deeply flawed, both morally and politically to sort of mobilize only when we're moved by the spectacle of, of, as she puts it, more black and brown death. Um, And since the book is, as I'm sort of, I said, like a kind of temporality of transformation book, like it's about these topics, I was hoping Mm -hmm. you could maybe speak to this sense that you convey that the now is propelled by recent uprisings, that, you know, our sense of the present is informed differently today than, than it has been. Like, there's a kind of almost cognitive dissonance or something where, you know, this, there is slow work in urgent times that must be done, that both and thing. Um, how do we stay present to that notion of the present, which is so elusive in a way? Well, I think of this as really being about the fact that this book is is written from the viewpoint of people who were not just provoked by the death of George Floyd or any others of the last period. Um, certainly the, the activism and the scholarship and other things that we're documenting have consistently um, been produced and people have been thinking through these questions, working through these questions, working in local communities, working toward mutual aid, working in transformative justice, restorative justice. So it isn't so much about a a different kind of experience for those of us who've been inside the movement. It's about the opportunity to widen that circle to include some who might have learned more about things as a result of the exposure of some of these recent cases. But it's also to invite those who've been awakened by that to join a community that has always existed and Mm -hmm. to begin to live in the multiple times, the multiple temporalities that are required in order to do abolitionist work. I mean, I referred earlier to the, you know, the joy that we've experienced, but also the the pain that we're constantly confronting and the violence that our movements are always engaged with. And in order to do that work, to sustain it over generations, to think about what it means to date this phase of this movement to Attica means that we are really talking about the slow work that has been uh, engaged in. We are looking at what people have been consistently doing. We're looking at ways of conceptualizing this moment that people have been preparing for, which is why when people on the Minneapolis City Council, despite what we might consider the failure of the attempt at radical transformation there, knew how to speak 
to this moment of defunding the police. It wasn't as if they were just um, saying slogans. They had very specific um, activities that they were going to engage in, very specific ways of redirecting funds, very specific ways of thinking about how to make the community healthier, uh, very specific ways of thinking about education as a as a something that we've fundamentally abandoned in this country intentionally because that education started to be threatening mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. elites. And so I think of this as something where we are inviting people to experience the the joy of doing this work, of being in this other temporality while we simultaneously attend to all of the emergencies that are continuing. But we can't live through those emergencies and we can't learn in the space of emergency to do something which would require us to entirely reconceptualize what we have been engaged in previously. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's this idea, you know, to quote the book, like we're all still reeling. I think you're speaking to yourselves as authors from the sense that historical time has fast forwarded. You know, yes. like that's that feeling of emergency and not being able to even think. Um, Erica, did you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I was just thinking about the sort of, you know, to add to Gina's point, to the sort of feminist labor of um, like the, pro- the abolition feminists now, you know, what does it mean to sort of um, center the the feminist labor that has been and continues to unfold kind of regardless of what's in, um, you know, what mainstream media is paying attention to that kind of does this um, knitting together of a particular kind of ecology. So I think that, you know, we, we felt like it was important to at least nod to the CC McDonald campaign, right. That unfolded in Minneapolis, you know, prior to the mobilizations that erupted after the murder of George Floyd in part because that that campaign around C.C. McDonald was, you know, um, was vibrant and passionate, um, you know, largely spearheaded by young folks, queer folks, folks of color, um, and didn't, you know, um, and, you know, didn't sort of label itself feminist, but did sort of the hard, slow work of um, trying to get you know, um, support for CC, mm-hmm. you know, trying to, um, all, all, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I think the project, um, um, the book project is, is, you know, trying to offer, you know, also a window on this, um, this kind of consistent, persistent unfolding of feminist labor that, you know, of course is, you know, paying attention to headlines, but it's also, un- you know, doing the work anyway, um, and I think that that um, felt important to us because that um, that ecosystem, that strata of labor, um, is um, is sort of uh, is is uh, it doesn't often. Just to echo back to um, a, a comment that Gina made, I think in relation to the first question, doesn't get a lot of attention. People don't pay attention to it, um, and it often dissipates. Like there's not a lot of record of that work, but that work we felt was really important to 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 amplify. Yeah. And it's, you know, something that I, you know, am still like processing is this insistence on, you know, abolitionism that is feminist, feminism that is abolitionist, like 
and trying to um, weave those together without prioritizing, you know, one or the other. And, and, and that's to not, you know, diminish the impact, as you're sort of saying, like, of the carceral system on women who are perhaps not locked up in the same numbers, but who bear the, the kind of brunt of um, all of the care labor required to keep the system running, all of this unremunerated care labor. Um, you know, the, the book, though, you know, I wanted to maybe, I guess, pick up on that kind of question of like the politics of language to some extent, like using these terms. Sarah Ahmed, in her book, What's the Use? She talks about these terms being used because they are used and then being sort of exhausted in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I know, I think, Gina, you talked about uh, during the, the book launch that the radical elements of a message can fall away uh, or fall out, as you put it, or get o- omitted when ideas are uh, made mainstream. Um, Erica, in your research, you talk about these metaphors, how they too can get, get kind of like flimsy and and brittle, like notions of like a pipeline or a railway. And and I, I guess I started thinking about the bind that you must find yourselves in as theorists of these struggles. You recognize in the book that language is a central dimension of radical political movements. Words like prison industrial complex or propaganda can provide that explanatory power when it's just like we're just surrounded by static. Um, but there is also that risk of something something falling away. And so I guess just basically what sorts of things happen in your mind when terms ossify or what's lost and gain when like metaphors themselves gain a certain level of purchase in the mainstream? I really think that this is, I mean, I should say maybe that I'm a literature PhD. I spent, spent a lot of time mm. um, thinking about language, uh, thinking about shifts in language and also the working at language and this is really not unique. I think we see the book also as doing some of the work of um, treating the term abolition feminism as a term that you don't need, but you could use to gather work um, under and you could use to make sure that you do, as we quote Mari Matsuda, always ask the other question uh, and Erica has been emphasizing the both and of the way we are thinking. And this is really consistent with our approach to all of these terms. I mean, anyone who's been involved in prison abolition for a long time understands that the generation of the idea of the prison industrial complex as something that we should try to think through has always been challenged by the fact that most people imaginatively think of the prison industrial complex as the buildings that are housing people who are currently incarcerated. And instead we're always having to do the work of talking about racial capitalism, of understanding the various ways in which something being labeled an industrial complex suggests that we need to think about all of the interconnected um, forms of relationality that are sustaining what we call the prison. And for us, abolition feminism also requires explanation. It isn't a given. It isn't even a given for us. I mean, even in writing, as we suggested, we all had a sense of how we would respond when someone else didn't ask the other question. But Mm -hmm. it was a much different thing to try to say, 
and to delineate and to cordon off an arena that we would say this itself is abolition feminism, partly because you can hear we have a feminist reluctance to that modality of expertise where, you know, we are the ones who are declaring from above um, what things are. So the book has that tension between um, welcoming in all the various kinds of labor and, and joyful practice that are in our minds um, part of abolition feminist work. And we also are freely acknowledging that we do not see everything we have forgotten so much, as Erica started talking about, including the work by our friends and even our own work. And, and um, so that, that, that playing in the tension of how we uh, think about these terms is really important. I have to say that I'm not a user of social media, really. I, I passively consume it as I need to, but I do find the, the sound bites of Twitter and the um, Instagram posts and the hashtags somewhat difficult to operate with, um, given the kind of person that I am and the ways that I think about language. It's why I love to teach, and it's why a book like this being shared with the world is an opportunity to have the longer conversations uh, and to encourage others to have those long conversations, which are not dependent on any of the four of us. And that is um, what I think we need to always insist, that these ideas are always more complicated, uh, that, that sometimes people use them as branding exercises, and that that is not really for us what is of primary importance. But instead, it is really about the constant working at language and working at our thinking so that we can ourselves always be made anew in every moment. Yeah. And, and I know, Erica, like you've written, you have this article, Ending the School to Prison Pipeline, Building Abolitionist Futures, where you, you talk about this exchange that you had with, um, I think, an incarcerated person at Stateville Prison in Illinois. And he sums things up by saying, oh, so you're making a living being an expert about my situation. Yeah. And there's this like that tension in the essay where like you're trying to avow the fact that you try to sort of deny any association with the label, that branding that experts give themselves. Um, but at the same time, you say that, quote, you can be an expert on the United States commitment to incarceration. And I'm wondering sort of what it feels like to both deny an association with the capital in a sense that comes with being an expert while at the same time trying to operate with this feeling that you have a certain maybe responsibility in this space to just share your expertise. Is it, you know, for you about just trying to avoid a certain paternalism um, or I think you call it in the book, a kind of charity syndrome, um, you know, that, that thing of just trying to modulate it so that you cannot uh, invoke this authority without trying to, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to say embed yourself, but um, empathize, perhaps. Okay. Wow. Great question. Again, let's see. Um, I was I, at the tail end of what Gina was saying earlier. I was just sort of thinking through the importance of um, you know complex ideas and opportunities to have like you know longer thoughtful engagements. And I feel like we started this project when abolition was 
you know, before the, the uprising and the organizing connected to summer 2020. Um, and I think that one of the sort of uh, realities that moved into the project was having, you know, opening up space for more complex and different kinds of engagements with abolition, given that abolition, how abolition was moving into um, left organizing spaces had, had changed, right, from when we started the project to now. So I wanted to add that. And then the, the second question, I think you're asking sort of how do we negotiate the, I mean, Gina has this great phrase, which I um, have liked to use, sort of the tendency in university spaces towards um, acquisitive individualism, maybe. I think that's, sure, a, yeah. um, and how do we, how do we reject that? How do we um, negotiate that? Um, and, I, you know, I certainly don't have, you know, a prescriptive or quick response to that. I mean, my strategy has been to um, develop, you know, lines of accountability with organizations and movements and networks and people um, who can check you, who can ask for things, who can, um, you know, um, who can, yeah, be be present and, and work to hold you accountable. I mean, I think on the flip side, uh, if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm tracking the question. Um, trying to be, um, you know, you know, I can also use my, um, form of acquisitive individualism. I can write, you know, authoritative letters, you know, for people who are trying to get parole and use my title and my university letterhead, such as it is to do that, right. I can agree to be grant evaluators Mm -hmm. for innumerable community projects, you know, where they need a, somebody with a PhD after their name. So I think it's kind of, um, you know, it's a, Again, there's not a, it's a messy move. You know, how do we negotiate that? Because I, you know, I certainly don't want to you know, disinhabit the kind of resources that are attached to my, my paid day job. Um, I think that those can be and are essential to, to, you know, creating the world that we know that we need. But I'm not, you know, um, silly enough to realize that those are the only things that I can offer and that, um, the knowledge produced from those spaces. And I think that our project is trying to remind readers that where knowledge comes from, where social movements come from. No. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's fantastic. And it, it immediately makes me think about like Patricia, Patricia Hill Collins uh, essay on black feminist epistemology, where she talks about how like the, the issue with academia is it, it is this adversarial almost uh, marketplace for ideas. Uh, but then to jump off of the second point, like, you know, John Holloway has that book, Change the World Without Taking Power. And it's like, that's all well and good. But there's also this um, undeniable sort of obsession with like winning that you also take up uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. And and like this, this obsession mm-hmm. with structural change as sort of a measure for uh, whether to what extent a movement has, has won, has broken through and sort of gotten a win. Um, and sort of like, like, that's different from what you're advocating, which is about like the struggle to turn justice into like an experiment in care and redemption almost. Um, And like, and trying to balance the both and like the, the structural change work and this like pursuit of reform uh, at the same time, but like to kind of frame it maybe more clearly um, like I've been, I've been obsessing over this, documentary series uh from pbs called philly da that's about the rise of like larry krasner to district attorney in philadelphia 
And there's this like remarkable moment in that series where an anti-incarceration activist explains that the Movement Alliance Project specifically did not take an abolitionist position when Krasner took office because they saw an opportunity to win with him in power. And like in Philly DA more broadly, like there is this conflict over, you know, the use of data to convince the public that these at least reforms are worth doing. Um, and like data-driven reforms, it, it shows over and over, over again are a strangely hard sell in Philadelphia Yes, because they have to compete with the fraternal order of police that is, you know, buying billboards and and trying to appeal to these like gut instincts about the role of police in protecting the public. Um, you know, I guess like, how do you feel about this bind of having to still deal with the binary nature of like winning and losing, waging an ideological war at the level of PR when you are clearly up against these like entrenched, well-funded institutions? Like, do you feel like the point is to radically change the narrative uh, as broadly as possible in order to win? Is data like an answer, really? I mean, do we or do we stay true to like insurgent ideas and the emergence of like new structures of feeling? Those seem intangible, but they also seem um, somehow more liberatory or something. And I, I didn't direct that to anyone. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so much there. Um, I mean, I feel like um, Erica always has such beautiful things to say about uh, the ostensible failures. So I'd, I'd love to hear that. I'll just say briefly that I think that um, we can't have it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is why we're really attached to this both and why we see this as the part of the argument why abolitionist work without feminist engagement is problematic. It's really that feminist component that doesn't assume you can leapfrog over the, um, the problems in front of you. It doesn't assume that you can just envision abolition all day and not care for all of those um, friends, loved ones, and others we don't know who are currently behind walls and bars and it's it sounds simple it's actually not simple to do both things it's really um important erica was raising earlier um you raised from her book the the story about um those people who become you know guards and others we need to have some understanding of how that happens and some openness to assisting people to make a different um make a different kind of um world with us and if we're not welcoming of people who have been doing things very differently then we really won't be able to change Mm -hmm. i i don't think it's only about mainstreaming certainly and i do know that the people who are have labeled themselves abolitionists will often not be able to touch a lot of the um, structured uh, reform work um, in the ways we might like. Mm. But I, I really see, and I think we all saw when we witnessed the reaction to George Floyd's murder, it wasn't just the excruciating video. It wasn't just 
the exhaustion. It wasn't just the pandemic. It was also the preparation that has gone into um, uh, these years of getting us ready. And so that is a culture change. It's slow work and it's going to be fragile work, but it is something that we can do. You know, the the last question, it's it's the, the question of the local, uh, in a sense. And, and there is this kind of dedication in the book to uh, the politics of sort of local struggles. Erica, Erica you know, you've, you've spoken a lot about um, the context of Chicago specifically. In, in Halifax, where I teach, um, where, as, as you mentioned, 41% of the population uh, was released, there is a vocal movement to defund the, and, and detask the police. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen what you sort of write about in the book made, made, made manifest. Like you talk about how the major difference between anti-police activism of previous eras and the contemporary era of Black Lives Matter is that the, anal- uh, the kind of analysis in the movement is more deeply structural and the solutions are more radical, more, more radically imaginative as a result. And, the, you know, this movement then to defund and detask and eventually dismantle policing, um, you know, sadly, but not unexpectedly, just took a hit uh, recently in Halifax, um, where, you know, the city voted to approve a $2 million uh, budget increase to the Halifax Police Department in spite of mm-hmm. the publication of a major report entitled Defunding the Police, Defining the Way Forward for HRM. It, it feels like a loss, mm-hmm. but I know that like L. Jones, uh, who has just written an mm-hmm. article for Hel- the Halifax Examiner on this failed opportunity mm-hmm. and the other authors of that report and all of the activists that they represent are not going to relent. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just wanted to ask, like, is there anything you would like to say to organizers maybe in this city about either how to go about maintaining momentum or just any lessons you've learned from organizing, from writing the book, or just being a caring person in the world right now? I mean, I kind of want to say just sort of huzzah on the report, yay, and um, mm-hmm. and um, just uh, excitement for the labor and the focus um, for producing, you know, that um, brilliant analysis and doing the work. Um, and just I mean, one of the interventions that we hope the book project makes is sort of creating you know, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of an ecosystem, like creating connections, like we see our work here in Chicago as connected to what's unfolding, you know, in Halifax, very similar sort of retrenchment, Mm. you know, pushback. But I also think we want to acknowledge sort of the, the successes of the work that we had, you know, conversations, and we are having live conversations about, you know, defunding the police in mainstream spaces that, um, the police budget, you know, um, is under scrutiny. Is um, is is you know, people are paying attention to policing as a as a budget rather than just giving it it the consistent you know two percent or whatever raise. So I know that those are you know a little bit hollow, uh, or perhaps can be interpreted as sort of hollow responses to the moment you know the the loss of um, the, the 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 Halifax budget getting an extra two million dollars. And I think that we can't lose sight of that. Like, of course, that matters. You know, that is, you know, infuriating. That is you know, frustrating. But I think at the same time, we also want to hold um, the win, you know, of 
um, the political education that that report did, the intervention that that um, report did, and kind of re- you know bringing more people onto our team. I you know I've, I've I've been talking about the example of the brilliant No Cop Academy campaign here in Chicago that. You know, sadly, we're probably going to get another $95 million police training academy in Chicago, but, um, you know, we're still going to be struggling and pushing back on that um, and fighting against that. Um, and one of the successes of that multi-year campaign is that hundred over 100 organizations that, you know, even two years earlier would never have signed on to um, a campaign that was that was demanding a reduction in a policing budget, you know, um, engaged in political education, signed on, believe and see themselves as, yes, like we can imagine and define safety outside of expanding our policing budget. So, um, you know, you know, a couple of, you know, just coming back to, you know, a couple of the responses I, I would have is, you know, we we see our work, you know, in, in Chicago as connected to the work that's unfolding, you know, in um you know, in Halifax, in Brisbane, in the UK, in Johannesburg, in San Paulo, you know, in in Oakland. I mean, they're, they're, uh, the project is, you know, really reminding us of these interconnections and also reminding us that we have to, you know, just to echo um, Gina's earlier put, hold these two things as true at the same time, that that's an enormous loss, the additional money to the budget, and we need to continue to struggle. And we have also, you know, won um, changes in political discourse, in how people are thinking about policing, in kind of the political sensibility around policing, and we have to see ourselves as doing that for the long haul. That you know, that's so important. Um, and uh, Gina, I, you know, I'll, I'll sp- I suppose I'll give the last word to you, but I want to thank you both for um, making the time again. It's been so wonderful talking to you both. Well, thank you. Um, I I'll just say that um, successes like the ones we've been talking about or failures, um, sometimes they're both. I, I think of uh, our local Stop Urban Shield um, campaign that succeeded in removing the middle, militarized training from police forces in the Bay. And that was really important. But I also think that we should be focusing on something that Angela refers to as unlikely coalitions, which is something we try to lift up in the book, which are really looking at ways that we can bring people into this movement from where they are. And one group of people that we're really engaged with are people who've been doing anti-domestic violence work Mm -hmm. and have Mm -hmm. had to learn the very difficult way about how much uh, policing does not serve uh, their cause. And so it isn't hopefully going to always be about reforming and spending more and more money uh, on police uh, departments. And at some point, I think we will know that. Mm -hmm. I think we won't know that, however, just from data or reports. Um, Mm -hmm. The reason we spent time talking about our popular cultural environment and the reason we need to talk about racial capitalism and the reason we need to talk about power is that we really need to understand what we're facing we can't just you know, try to show people how damaging police and prisons are and have been. We have to do more to encourage the kinds of complex thinking and imagination that allow people to start to invest in other forms of safety, security, and joy. Yeah, wow. Um, Again, thank you so much. Uh, There's, of course, a million more things I want to ask you, but uh, you've been so generous with your time, um, and I can't thank you enough. 
Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate the conversation. Yes, thank you.